From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, November 19th. I'm Marco Werman. The death toll mounts in Gaza after another day of Israeli airstrikes. This aid worker ventured out to survey the damage. The first thing that struck me was the creepiness in the streets. They are basically empty. We'll hear from the Israeli side of the border, too. And later, conservationists lament the decline in Britain's bird population. These figures give us the startling and shocking story that, you know, we're losing the birds and we're just not doing enough, you know, in enough places. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Israel launched another wave of military strikes against targets in Gaza today. The Palestinian death toll from the bombings has now surpassed 100 people. Meanwhile, militants in Gaza continued to fire rockets into Israel, more than 100 today alone. Three Israelis were killed in one strike last week. The latest violence follows a particularly gruesome day in Gaza yesterday, including one attack that killed nine members of a single Palestinian family. In a few moments, we'll hear the view from Israel, but first of the BBC's Paul Danaher in central Gaza. He visited the site of an Israeli strike today, a building used by several international media organizations, but also by the militant group Islamic Jihad. As I got there, it was still on fire. Uh, smoke was billowing up and wrapping itself around this kind of 10-story building. Now, the Israelis say the target was Islamic Jihad, and uh, it appears they did kill the head of the media section of Islamic Jihad's armed wing. But as I came towards the building, I could see there were a lot of other people that were on the seventh story, which was five stories above. So there was a lot of concern at the time that the building uh, wasn't put out, uh, that the people above may have been uh, injured. It seems that in the end, the, the only casualties were the Islamic Jihad people. Right. And uh, many other injuries, as you say, including a man you saw uh, brought out of that uh, media building who was burnt from uh, head to toe. I mean, it does feel based on your dispatches, which we're following closely here in Boston, that today represents in Gaza a notch up in the aggressiveness, uh, not to mention the symbolic number of now 100 dead inside Gaza from the fighting. Am I correct in that sense that the level of violence is at a different point than it was before the weekend? Yeah, you are. I mean, the, it, it's been gradually going up. It's been lurching upwards from Friday. Yesterday was the worst single event when a, uh, an Israeli strike was carried out on a house uh, of the Dalu family. There was a bit of confusion about that this morning. The Israeli newspapers were reporting that it was a complete mistake based on a technical error, according to their sources. And the IDF then came up with another story, and then they had another story. And the final story they came out with was that they had meant to target the house, and they were trying to uh, attack a senior Hamas uh, militant, and they believed he was hiding in this house, or that it wasn't his house, but they don't actually know whether he was there. Uh, all we do know about this story is that 10 other people were, uh, four of them children, and they all died. And I, I saw yesterday I was there when they were trying to dig people out. It was a terrible, uh, traumatic scene. There was a, a small baby girl that was carried out in the arms of one of the guys digging people out, and we went back today, and they were still trying to search for some of the bodies. 
Uh, every night we are in a hotel room and it is literally shaken by the, the scale of the bombardment that's going on. Uh, the last couple of nights it's been coming from the, the IDF, uh, the naval forces they have on the coast who are firing in artillery rounds. And the thing about an artillery round, which is different from an airstrike, is with an airstrike there is a sense of, of it being a bit more precision, whereas artillery rounds are notorious for going slightly astray. So I've always found I can sleep through an airstrike, but uh, I can't sleep through an artillery bombardment because you just don't know where it's going to land. The BBC's Paul Danaher speaking with us from Gaza. Carl Scrembri is a spokesman for Oxfam there. Earlier today, he visited Shifa Hospital in Gaza City to see how staff there has been dealing with the many casualties. He describes what he saw as he made his way there. The first thing that struck me was the creepiness in the streets. They are basically empty. Then what was, you know, a, a bit of a lull this uh, morning from 10 to three in the afternoon. Then that's when we, we've had we've had other airstrikes starting again. Right. One one scene I've passed through was the destruction, the complete destruction of a football ground, which is like one big crater in more densely populated areas like refugee camps. That's where uh, a lot of civilian casualties uh, have been reported. Right. So given what you've just told me, what kind of injuries are they seeing at the hospital? This is the main hospital in, in the Gaza Strip. It's a general hospital where most of the injuries in the north go to. What they were saying is the majority of the, the, the injuries they're getting is civilian people, especially young people, uh, children and, and mothers. Um, I saw actually a young man being uh, transferred. He was in excruciating pain with his pelvis basically completely destroyed by shrapnel that had entered into their house. And he was being transferred to Egypt because he cannot be treated here. He needs much more sophisticated medical services. The the staff also told you uh, at the hospital that supplies are starting to run low. What, What were they particularly concerned about? The one thing they mentioned was uh, anesthetic, which is critical. They they are running out of anesthetic, and that means they wouldn't be able to do surgeries. They're running out of disposable medical supplies and drugs. The bigger picture, which one has to keep in mind, is that Gaza is always running out of medical supplies because it is under blockade. This is the fifth year. Now we've entered the sixth year of Gaza under blockade, and that means there is no free flow of material coming in according to needs, but it's only according to what is allowed by uh, Israel, which keeps Gaza under blockade, and by what comes in through the tunnels. So um, when it comes to medical supplies, the flow is always limited and it's never, it's never enough. So you can imagine that when you are in an emergency, you have already what is already a strained medical system is put under even further strain because it is an emergency. You have even the strain on the blood supplies, for example, is a problem. That was Oxfam spokesman Carl Skembri describing how casualties are being treated at Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. In Israel, troops remain on alert for a possible invasion of Gaza. The government says it would prefer a negotiated solution to the crisis, but remains determined to stop militants in Gaza from firing more rockets into Israel. Israelis have mixed feelings about the prospect of a ground war, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. One of Israel's chief rabbis led a special prayer service at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The faithful were asking God to look after Israeli soldiers preparing to invade the Gaza Strip. 
I'm an Israeli citizen. We have a state. The first responsibility of a state is to protect its citizens. So we're going to have to allow uh, the state of Israel and the military of Israel to see this thing through. American-born Baruch David Weiden prayed last night that Israel would do what it must to stop the rocket fire from Gaza. And that's not a prayer for us to be ruthless, ruthless killers, but it is a prayer for us not to be so worried and maybe overly concerned about what people might think of us. That's my prayer. An Israeli newspaper poll published this morning found overwhelming support for Israel's military campaign in Gaza, 90 percent, but only a third of respondents said that a ground invasion was a good idea. To get a sense of how Israelis were feeling on day five of this round of violence, I visited a town that's probably been hit by the most rockets from Gaza in recent years. A construction crew in the center of the Israeli town of Storot, which is right on the border with Gaza, is, is busy at work laying some bricks in the plaza of a, of a strip mall. Most of the businesses here in the center of town are closed, and, and there are a few people out and about, but things are awfully quiet. It seems that most people are staying home. A lot of people here are uh, really suffer from this situation. You know, it's not normal. Tomer Hazan talked with me on his way to work at the electric company. He said Israel should not invade Gaza again. Instead, it should secure a ceasefire with Hamas in Gaza and then start negotiating with the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank. So the people in Gaza will see an example. How can they achieve a normal life? If you don't do that... What kind of hope you giving them? You're talking about a, a peace agreement. Yeah, of course. If you don't have a peace agreement, no one in this area will have any hope for a normal life. A little while later came Sterot's first incoming rocket of the morning, and then another. Standing on a hilltop looking through binoculars into the Gaza Strip about 800 yards away, a Starot resident named Nassim told me there's only one way for Israel to stop the rockets. And finish, finish, this, finish the story. There's only a military solution here. That's the only solution. There's nobody to talk to on the other side. Military solution, that's it. So what are the Israelis trying to accomplish with this offensive? Alex Fishman is a military analyst with Israel's Yediot Arenot newspaper. He says the goal is not about toppling Hamas in Gaza. The end game is very simple and very modest. First of all, to guarantee that Hamas and its allies in Gaza Strip will stop shooting whatever they feel to do it. Secondly, they want the Egyptians to guarantee to stop smuggling those heavy rockets to Gaza again. That's a reference to the longer-range rockets fired from Gaza into the vicinity of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in recent days. Fishman says Israel is trying to put pressure on Egypt's new president, Mohamed Morsi, to rein in Hamas, and the army is moving forward on a plan to attack Gaza with ground troops. He says that would be far more deadly for both sides than what's playing out now. Also, I believe the political and the military leadership are not eager to go to such an invasion. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Ashkelon, Israel. David Makovsky directs the project on the Middle East peace process at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's been looking at what each side wants in a ceasefire. 
the Israeli approach is two phases. First, stop firing. We can't keep the Israeli people in shelters and we can't keep troops massed along the borders. So let's just have a lull because any negotiation is going to be protracted. Where it seems to me, and I can't say this with 100% certainty, the Hamas view is, no, the world is watching now. And, you know, let's work out the terms now because this might be more favorable to us. And we want everything high profile because of our, we want to leverage this new Egyptian relationship. So even the structure of a ceasefire is not something they could agree upon. Uh, I happen to be at the prime minister's office today, and they certainly are of the view that the next 24 to 48 hours are critical or else they go to ground. So there's a question of maybe in the shorter term, they have some converging interests. And that's the big discussion. And so what do you think those converging interests are? I mean, where is the daylight where, you know, some possible ceasefire, some terms could be met? Look, the question would be is, can Israel and Hamas agree on a situation where there's total quiet? Maybe Israel would open up more and Egypt would open up more, but they would also require more from Hamas, which is to impose the ceasefire, not just on themselves, but on these new Salafi jihadi groups that have sprouted up in Gaza that have been mocking Hamas at different times, saying, you know, you're not committed to the resistance like you used to be, you've gone establishment. So this is more complicated than it was in 2008 and 9 when Hamas was the main player in town. They're still the leading player in town, no question. But what is being going to be asked of them is to exert control over jihadi groups who have insisted that Hamas is losing their way. And that is to be seen whether they can able to exert it. If they can't exert it, though, the ceasefire is meaningless. If any Salafi group could on any given day just start shooting rockets into civilian areas in Israel, then what good is it for Israel? David Makovsky of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He spoke with us from Jerusalem. Our partners at the BBC have live coverage of events in Gaza and Israel. You can find a link at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This next story is pretty remarkable, even miraculous. A team of scientists in England has reversed paralysis of the hind legs in a group of dogs with spinal injuries, and they have done so by transplanting nose cells into the injured spinal cords. This is the first successful effort to repair spinal injuries in an animal other than laboratory animals like mice and rats. The team's findings were published in the journal Brain. Professor Robin Franklin is one of the authors of the study. He's a stem cell biologist biologist at Cambridge University in England. Uh, Nose and spine don't seem to have any connection to me. Uh, Why nose cells, Professor Franklin? So the reason we use nose cells is that because the part of the nervous system that deals with the special sense of smell turns out to be extremely good at regenerating. And they regenerate very efficiently because of the properties of these cells called olfactory and sheathing cells that associate with olfactory nerve fibers. So what we've tried to do is to harness this ability of the olfactory and sheathing cells to support nerve growth in the olfactory system to try and promote nerve growth in the spinal cord where nerves don't normally regrow after injury. I see. So these cells uh, produce nerve cells in the nose, but when put in the spine, they, they 
be doing something they'd be doing in the nose anyway. Now, tell us about one of the experiments is with a, a dog called Jasper. And in the pretty extraordinary video, you know, anybody who's ever seen a dog that doesn't have the use of its hind legs, they kind of have to walk around in a harness and it's the front legs that are kind of propelling them. So that's what happened to Jasper. What did you do to him and what were the results? So Jasper is, uh, as you might imagine, from the treatment group. We had um, two groups of dogs, all of them with chronic long-term paraplegia, that's to say loss of their hind limb function. Uh, there was no recovery at all in the group of dogs that didn't have any cells transplanted. But in the group that did, there was quite a spectrum of outcomes. So at the less optimistic end of the spectrum, there were dogs that were really not so different from the controls. But at the other end of the spectrum, there were dogs such as Jasper you described that were able to regain some uh, walking action in their hind limb. But most significantly, that walking action in the hind limb was now coordinated with the walking action in, in the front legs. So that implies that we've done something beneficial in the damaged spinal cord between the parts that deal with the front legs and the parts that deal with the back legs. So people who have dogs with spinal injuries, I, I imagine, would be delighted about this discovery. Is this going to be made available uh, for wider use in veterinary hospitals? Well, it certainly could be. Um, this is an advancement in, in veterinary therapy. But perhaps more significantly, it's also a stepping stone between laboratory studies and future human studies in that it, it, it's a way of testing in a clinical situation whether promising laboratory studies are going to be worth investing or pursuing in human trials. Right. Well, that's where I was going to go next because I imagine anybody who has a, a, some level of paraplegia would be really excited by what this might promise. How far away are we from this having any effect on humans? Yeah, so what, what our study shows is that there is certainly a case for proceeding with uh, human trials. In fact, some human olfactory and sheathing cell transplantation into spinal cord injury in people has taken place at different places around the world already. Uh, what's never been done, though, is this sort of controlled study that we did in the dogs to show that it's actually effective. So having proven that, I think there is um, a you know, green light for proceeding with human trials. But with two caveats, one is that the recovery isn't always going to be consistent. And the second caveat is that when you damage a spinal cord, you lose many functions, not just the ability to walk. So you lose, for example, the ability to control the bowel and the bladder. And those functions weren't restored in the dogs. So this isn't a complete cure for spinal cord injury. So that will require a multi-component approach. But what we've shown is that, that at least one of those components is likely to be effective to a degree. Professor Robin Franklin at the Center for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine at Cambridge University. Professor Franklin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You can watch a video of Jasper, that dog in Dr. Franklin's experiment, before and after his nose cell transplant. Just come to theworld.org. Brits love their feathered friends. Bird spotting is a popular pastime in Britain, but it's getting harder. A new survey says Britain has been losing birds at the rate of one nesting pair every minute for almost 50 years. In all, that's about 44 million fewer birds since 1966. Richard Gregory is a scientist with the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds and one of the report's authors. Richard Gregory, which birds are suffering the most? It's a variety of birds, in fact, in our, in our countryside and, and in the seas. So it, it's birds in the farm environment, in woodlands, and some of our seabirds and sea ducks living around the coast have been severely affected over the last sort of several decades. Mm, so what's causing the population loss? I mean, you're with the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Are they not being protected? Well, they are being protected and the protection measures in place and, and the 
um, the initiatives we and lots of partners that are putting uh, in place on the ground are kind of working for some of the species but it's the overwhelming picture that's a bit bleak really that you know despite all this fantastic effort and and goodwill and, and love of birds in the UK you know these figures that we've pulled together for the first time give us the startling and shocking story that you know we're losing the birds and we're just not doing enough you know in enough places. Now you've worked uh, with the Audubon Society here in the U.S. How do the two countries compare in terms of where the bird population is headed and what's being done to kind of keep it alive? I think that there are some really strong parallels and the work that Audubon do with the North American Bird Conservation Initiative, NAPSI, in the US and in um, in Canada as well, shows some really kind of striking similarities and similar threats, things like climate change worries. You know, in the United States and in Europe, we know there's a whole group of species that live in, in the arid lands, of course, the Arctic and coastal birds, ocean birds, very, very vulnerable to climatic change. Now, your report for uh, the UK is not all grim, uh, kind of like uh, the US and Canada. Some species are prospering, correct? That's right. That's right. And and each sort of individual bird has its own story to tell. You know, we have a bird called the Great Spotted Woodpecker, um, an adaptable, quite intelligent, robust woodpecker that's really taken advantage of people feeding in their gardens and a bit more woodland being grown in the UK. So that species is doing really well. Uh, another species is called the blackcap. And this is a small warbler. Um, many of our warblers that migrate to Africa are declining strongly. But the, the clever black cap has kind of changed its migration status over the last few years to, to winter much closer to Europe, sort of within Europe. And it's benefiting hugely. You can even see them on bird tables, you know, wow. in the winter in the UK. So, Richard, uh, let's end on a grim note. Uh, <laughs> are there any species, what are the one or two species uh, in the UK that are actually in danger of maybe becoming uh, extinct? Well, there are a couple of sea ducks that we point out in this report. These are birds that are living around the coasts, and, and one's called the long-tailed duck and one's called the velvet scoter, and you have the equivalent species over in the States as well. And these birds were declining around the UK, going from a thousands of pairs down to a few hundred. You know, they're really a critical issue now on a global scale. Richard, I'm just curious how you got into this whole discipline of, of bird protection. I mean, w were you concerned about this issue years ago? Did you see something on the horizon that alarmed you? Well, I suppose so. I mean, I, I have an inherent interest in birding from the age of about four years old when I apparently wow. sort of got a pair of binoculars and started to look at birds. So that's a bit odd, really, I suppose, isn't it? And I, I, I've carried that through in my professional interest in ecology and ornithology and natural history and birds. And I do feel passionately that, you know, uh, with this information and, and the great work being done in the States as well, we, we've got to do more to try and protect the environment because ultimately, you know, we all depend on it. Hmm. Richard Gregory with the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Thanks very much. Thank you. News is next. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the struggle to create Egypt's new constitution. The 100-member panel that is writing it is struggling with internal divisions. We have upper class, middle class, low class. We have educated, half-educated, uh, no education, and people who believe they are educated and they are not educated. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. 
Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama is in the middle of his first post-re-election foreign trip. He chose to go to Asia. Now, given that both Obama and Romney used China as a punching bag during the campaign, you'd think the president might want to go there to speak with China's new leaders. But no, instead he opted for Burma and Cambodia. Obama is making history on this trip. He's the first sitting U.S. president to visit either country. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing explains how the trip is going down in China. I think President Obama's visit to Burma and to Cambodia, it's a symbolic event. And I think the Chinese are pretty savvy about reading the significance of the visit. President Obama will be visiting China again, no doubt. He will be visiting other countries in the region. The Chinese are fully aware and accept that the U.S. has longstanding alliances with different Asian countries. But when President Obama is visiting specifically actually three countries that have all had close relations with China, he also was in Thailand on Sunday, the Chinese see this as a pointed attempt by the United States to show that not only is it not leaving the Asia-Pacific, but it will endeavor to have relations with the very countries with whom China has tried very hard over the years to build up close relations. I doubt China's government actually says we don't like how Burma is opening up. What has been the official reaction from Beijing? Well, in the official Chinese media, there have been a number of op-eds about, okay, the U.S. is trying to be hegemonic and to contain China and maybe even to, you know, develop new markets for arms sales. It's, you know, sort of nudging in into issues where it doesn't belong and and has no business. Uh, For instance, China's disputes with Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam and the Philippines over, you know, who has what rights to territory and the high seas in, in the South China Sea. And also to the tensions between China and Japan over the Jiaoyu slash Senkaku Islands. So one perspective here is, you know, President Obama is coming to again show we, the United States, are an Asia-Pacific power and we're not going away. Uh, The Chinese, on the other hand, feel that maybe the U.S. should step back one or two paces and let China resolve these issues the way it would like to, which is one-on-one, bilaterally, which is an approach that would mostly allow China to strong-arm its way into being able to get what it wants out of the negotiation. So Obama spoke rather eloquently at Burma's main university today. What about the setting in and of itself? The university there has been essentially shuttered since pro-democracy protests in 1988. What's the significance of where Obama spoke? Oh, it's hugely significant. The university itself became sort of a symbol of the pro-democracy movement, as did the residents across the street, Hong San Suu Kyi's home, where President Obama also paid a visit. And just a couple of years ago, there were still guards outside her home who weren't allowing many people to come and and see her at all. Mm. So things have changed dramatically in Burma in a very short period of time. And President Obama felt that by coming now, it provided the right amount of, of encouragement and, you know, possibly a little inspiration. You know, the, this is a path that you're traveling on and we're here to support you if you continue to travel on it. 
there are some detractors, some people within human rights groups who say, you know, maybe it was a little too soon for him to go to Burma. We don't know for sure whether the the reforms are going to keep going apace the way they have been the past year. And, you know, shouldn't you withhold some sort of rewards until you see more results? Uh, in fact, even Aung San Suu Kyi herself was a little bit hesitant at first, but eventually signed on to the idea that this was a good time for the visit. Mm. And President Obama definitely pressed the point during his speech of, you know, we're inspired by what you've done, but it's the beginning of a very long journey. The World's China correspondent, Mary Kay Mack, said, always good to speak. Thank you. Good to speak with you too, Marco. For today's GeoQuiz, we're in search of an oasis. An underground spring, a source of drinking water. It comes in handy when you're in the middle of a desert. So the Libyan town we want you to name is such a place, a watering hole that became an important transit point for ancient camel caravans. This town's about 200 miles south of Tripoli, and that places it pretty much where Libya borders Algeria and Tunisia. It's an ancient town that's home to a mix of clans and ethnic groups. Its unique preserved architecture has earned the town the designation as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So your assignment, name this Libyan oasis that has the nickname the Pearl of the Desert. In Egypt, there's a lot at stake with the writing of the country's new constitution. The Egyptian revolution of last year offers a chance to draft a document that enshrines the hopes and rights of all Egyptians, but the 100-member panel that's supposed to write it is struggling. The Constituent Assembly has been plagued by internal divisions and by the resignation of several liberal and Christian members who say their views are being ignored. Noel King filed this report from Cairo. On a recent Friday, around 10,000 Egyptians, most of them men, many calling themselves Salafis or ultra-conservative Muslims, rallied in Tahrir Square. Sheikh Hossam Adin says there's no question that Islamic law, or Sharia, must be the law of the land. Sharia law is critical for Egypt, Adin says. God said that if people fear and believe, they will have blessings in heaven and on earth. There will be justice and charity. But that view isn't going over well with millions of Egyptians. Mona Makramubaid was a member of the first panel writing the Constitution, but she quit along with other Christians and Muslims who complained that the Assembly didn't represent Egypt's diversity. A court agreed and dissolved it. But Makramubaid says the new one is no better for liberal, secular, and Christian Egyptians. They are absolutely terrorized. They are very concerned about what could happen because they could be uh, treated as second-class citizen. They could be deprived of their real rights. 
as a full-fledged citizen. Now, members of the second panel are resigning. The role of religion in the new Egypt is a flashpoint issue, but it's not the only one. It seems everyone has a problem with the draft constitution. Women worry it doesn't give them the same rights as men. Rights advocates condemn its failure to ban torture and human trafficking. An Egyptian newspaper reports that some are ticked off with the use of flowery language. And in the seaside city of Alexandria, a new non-governmental organization says it will push for an article that guarantees fair treatment of Egyptian dwarves. We have urban, rural, Bedouin. We have upper class, middle class, low class. We have educated, half educated, uh, no education, and people who believe they are educated and they are not educated. Political analyst Saeed Sadiq teaches at the American University in Cairo. And like seemingly everyone else in Egypt, Sadiq has his own complaints about the draft constitution. Look, for example, Article 76, defending the land, uh, is an honor and a sacred duty. Uh, we know that. The framers of the Constitution appear a little fed up with all the complaints. Minar Shorbagi is Deputy Secretary General of the Constituent Assembly. We have been working since June, and we are working more than 12 hours a day. And it has been a long, exhausting process for everyone. By this time now, we are all very stressed out. It has been, you know, it took a toll on all of us. Shorbagi, a liberal, is sympathetic to concerns but thinks some of them are overwrought. She pointed to an article of the draft constitution which has created an uproar, Article 68. It says Egyptian women will have equal status with men as long as that does not conflict with Islamic law. You know, many people think that this article is just a new article that was added in this new constitution. This article has been there in the 1971 constitution, it's the same Xerox of this article, no change in a single word. On Sunday, around two dozen liberal members of the assembly withdrew from the process, casting new doubt on whether the group can meet a deadline of December 12th to produce a final draft constitution. The penalty, if they miss the deadline, is unclear, but one scenario is that the assembly might be dissolved and the whole process will start all over again. For The World, I'm Noelle King in Cairo. Now on to neighboring Libya to answer our geo-quiz. We were looking for an ancient town known as the Pearl of the Desert. The answer is Gadamas, home to about ten to 12,000 people. It's a mix of many cultures, including Arabs and ethnic Tuaregs. The two groups have lived together peacefully in the town for centuries. But Libya's revolution has driven a wedge between them. Marine Olivezi reports from Gadamas. Walk through the covered alleyways of Gadames' old town, along the whitewashed houses of mud bricks, and find yourself in a sun-drenched palm tree garden. Gorgeous, isn't it? Ah, here you can see a very good example of the mud bricks. Gadames has been recognized as a UN World Heritage Site. Three countries intersect here, Libya, Tunisia and Algeria, and at least as many cultures. Arabs mixed with Libya's indigenous people, the Amazigh, and with the Tuaregs, the nomadic people of the Sahara. Arab merchants needed Tuaregs to guide them in the desert, and so began a relationship that's more than a thousand years old. Yakub Dawi is the director of cultural affairs and civil society at the Gadame City Council. He says over time, Tuaregs settled in and around the town. We are living together. 
we are studying together uh, when they are making celebrations everything we we are doing everything together without any problems and together in february 2011 they rose up against Muammar Gaddafi's regime Dawi plays a video from that time when dozens of locals stormed the office of the secret police. They are announcing that, uh, that you are a dictator. It is, your, it is the end of you, dictator. This is your end. Dawi says Tuaregs took part in the riot, but their support ended when the regime chose a Tuareg leader to crush the uprising in Gadames. Most Tuaregs here sided with their tribal leader. In August 2011, rebel forces entered Gadames and liberated the town without a fight. But a month later, pro-Qaddafi forces, including some Tuareg leaders, mounted an offensive to try to take it back. They didn't give us any warning. They attacked us suddenly. Arab-Tuareg relations had been strained since the start of the uprising, says Tuareg community leader Mohamed Agmama. But this was the last straw. He says after local fighters pushed back the pro-Qaddafi assault, they turned their anger on Tuaregs living here. They burnt my house. They burnt my car. But I didn't do anything to justify any of this. Agmama, along with about 200 Tuareg families, fled Gadames the next day. He's never gone back. Local officials in Gadames concede that there were some isolated acts of retribution against Tuareg militiamen, though they say Tuareg families were never forced out. But Tuaregs insist their community has been scapegoated. Even Tuaregs who fought against pro-Qaddafi forces, like Moussa Farjgmama, he helped liberate the town. He says Tuaregs weren't the only ones who collaborated with the regime in Gadames, but they were the ones who got blamed. Musa left Gadames six months ago after numerous threats. He and a dozen other families settled about 30 miles to the north on a stretch of desert land. They live under traditional Tuareg tents made of rugs and carpets. The group elder says he spent half his life roaming the Sahara, so he's used to this lifestyle. He says it's harder for the younger generation who are accustomed to more modern comforts. Mohamed Amoud Amma, who's 34, says this is just temporary anyway. Not that he plans on moving back to Gadames. None of them do, but he points to the foundations of houses they're building here. We want to build a new city. Okay, after uh, maybe after. Uh one month, maybe change this uh, area. We go to the new house here. Mohammed jokes and invites me to come back next year to see the skyscrapers sprouting up in the sand. <laughs> Behind the jokes, though, it's obvious some of the Tuaregs here still struggle to make sense of it all. It's just better this way, Mohammed and others keep saying, as if to convince themselves. We'll live at peace now, on our own. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi in Gadames. Libya. We've got great pictures from Gadames, Libya's Pearl of the Desert. Check out our slideshow at theworld.org. Still ahead, an online fundraising campaign to save a Spanish soccer team from bankruptcy. It actually worked, and you'll hear why on Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In a moment, we'll hear about a new album by two of Spain's best-known singers. But first, an update on another story from Spain that we told you about on Friday. It's a one about former top-tier Spanish soccer team Real Oviedo. It was facing bankruptcy and an end to its 86-year history unless it raised about $2 million to pay its debts. Enter Sid Lowe, a British journalist living in Spain, who started a Twitter campaign to get fans to buy shares in the club. And the whole thing snowballed, and and with every question and answer and response and and follow-up question, it got bigger and bigger and created a degree of interest in the club that I think, in truth, none of us could ever have expected. I'll say, in the end, 20,000 fans from around the world bought enough shares to raise not two, but $2.5 million. So old debts were paid and bankruptcy was avoided. As inspiring as the story was, there still wasn't a guarantee that Real Oviedo would prosper without additional funds to face a future. Well, that Twitter campaign attracted one more investor over the weekend, and he just happens to be Mexican telecoms tycoon Carlos Slim, a.k.a. the richest man in the world, according to Forbes. He decided to invest $2 million of his considerable fortune into the team, becoming Real Oviedo's largest shareholder. And yes, he was inspired by the fans. That's what Slim's son-in-law, Arturo Elias, told a Spanish TV station. The team's real owners, said Elias, are the fans. He also promised that the goal of Slim's investment was not to speculate on the team's value, but to help improve its fortunes on the field. Real Oviedo fans will like the sound of that. The team is, after all, still mired in Spain's soccer equivalent of the minor leagues and faces a long way back to the top. And we stay in Spain for our global hit today. Two of that country's best-known singer-songwriters are Juan Manuel Serrat and Joaquin Sabina. Each is known as a solo artist, but they recently recorded a new album together, much to the delight of our own Beto Arcos. La Orquesta del Titanic, the new album by Juan Manuel Serrat and Joaquin Sabina, is in the style of Lennon and McCartney. It's hard to know from the credits who wrote which song, but I've followed the careers of these two cats for more than three decades, so I can usually tell whether it's a Serrat or a Sabina song, especially when I hear them sing the verses. No me importa alternar con un mafioso Si cuenta buenos chistes y es rumboso No me mola aplastar a los insectos A quien me brinda o no la le contesto Serrat has a warm, melodious voice Sabina has a raspy, growly one. No tengo en un altar a la familia culpable de mis fobias y mis filias. Pero eso sí, confieso que me agota tener que soportar a tanto idiota. Serrat is 68 from Catalonia and Sabina is 63 from Andalucía. Serrat has released more than 35 albums in a career spanning more than five decades. Sabina has put out more than 20 albums in three decades. They started touring together in 2007. Both of them are considered major figures of Spanish pop music. And they're big, not just in Spain, but also here in the Americas. I first heard Serrat when I was eight years old. My older sister used to bring albums from Mexico City when she'd visit us in my hometown of Jalapa, Veracruz. I remember the voice of this young, emerging Spanish singer... As soon as I started getting into music in my teens, I bought every album I could find. That's when I began to understand and identify with his touching lyrics. Yo cansado, tu perdida, nos curamos las heridas con ají. 
hoy por ti, mañana por mí. Si caminas yo te sigo, si te cansas hago un nido en el arcén. Hoy por ti, mañana también. I'm tired and you're lost. Let's cure the wounds with spicy chilies. Today for you, tomorrow for me. If you walk, I will follow. If you get tired, I will make a nest on the shoulder. Today for you, tomorrow too. I heard Sabina later when I was in college, in my early 20s, and a friend introduced me to his music. His lyrics are racy, filled with raw humor and biting irony, as in this song titled Después de los Despueses. It's a story about an affair with a married woman. Agonía, garrafón, noche indigesta. A veces amanecía por detrás del botellón. The lyrics say, agony, a bottle, a night of indigestion. There were times I woke up early at dawn behind the bottle and the siesta. I confess that your kisses deserved a much better song than this one. Both Serrat and Sabina like to comment on the issues of the day, so it's fitting that the album's title, La Orquesta del Titanic, the Titanic's orchestra, is a kind of metaphor for the state of affairs in Spain. During a press conference earlier this year, Sabina said he knew the economic crisis in Spain was big and the Spanish people were desperate. And he added, to sing is all we could come up with so that the people have a song to laugh or to cry. Last year, I had a chance to see Sabina while he was on tour with his band in the U.S., but even after all these years, I'd never seen Serrat in concert. Until this month, when Serrat and Sabina performed together here in Los Angeles. They played for more than three hours. One of the last encores was a song I used to sing when I was a teen. It's called Cantares, written by the Spanish poet Antonio Machado. I sang along with the thousands of fans from Spain and Latin America at the concert. For the world, Ambeto Arcos, Los Angeles. That's all for us today. Our Boston team includes Steven Snyder and Nina Forutan. In London are Ian Rosser and Rahul Joglaker. The world's engineers are Louis Cronin, Robin Moore, Tina Toby, and Mike Wilkins. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Michael Rass, Manya Gupta, Tori Starr, and Sonia Narang. And we're online at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Join us again tomorrow. Golpe a golpe. Yeah, go
is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, the Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International